You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. In this edition of Communication Mixdown, we take a turn and travel into the heady and sometimes rarefied world of art. Hello, I'm John Langer. I don't have to tell you these are times that are crying out for change, for changing the direction and the priorities of unequal social structures and power relations. But where and how do we mobilize people to gather the strength and to realize the capacity to make these changes? There's clearly a whole range of possibilities. Our special guest this week is Joanna Mendelson. She's got a background as a curator in art museums. She's worked in journalism as an art critic, and she's currently an honorary associate professor in art and design at the University of New South Wales. She thinks that art and artists and particular kinds of artistic practices don't inhabit some rarefied zone of inaccessibility, and art in a multi-layered way can make important interventions. And she's been thinking about how this happens historically and right now. And I spoke to Joanna Mendelssohn earlier this week. You've written an essay very recently published in the online magazine The Conversation, and the essay is entitled... Can Art Really Make a Difference? And the title of the essay is actually a question, and I think that's really important to note. And as you start the essay, you basically explain a particular painting that you've encountered in Berlin. And I just wanted us to start our conversation with you telling us a little bit about that painting, its effect on you, and how it relates to that question about art really making a difference. It wasn't so much the painting as the whole exhibition. The, um, the painting is called Cassandra, and the exhibition was called Cassandra, Visions of Catastrophe, 1914-1945. And it was really about those incredible German artists who I desperately admire, who foresaw, who described what was happening, and who foresaw what would happen with the rise of the Nazis and uh, the whole catastrophe of the the bubble economy just before the crash, the hyperinflation in the 1920s, um, the the mutilated soldiers, and then the way that people turned because of that that chaos, they turned towards what seemed to be authority uh, with charisma, and of course authority with charisma was Hitler. The artists saw this, and they predicted what was going to happen, and nobody believed them. The uh, Cassandra part of it is she is a goddess who predicts the future, but no one pays attention to her. Is that the way... She's not a goddess. Cassandra was the daughter of the king of Troy. 
and she was cursed. She was cursed to always be able to foresee the future, and she was cursed never to be believed. Now, one of the ways you talk about art making some interventions in relation to uh, things that needed to change is you particularly focus, as you've just talked about, in relation to war and the depiction of war and its aftermath. And interesting, the way I was reading what you were writing is you use a f- several key examples from over the centuries, and I wanted to spend a bit of time just unpacking that for us. You start with the Spanish painter Goya and his painting called Disasters of War, and I wanted you to tell us a little bit about it and why it's significant. Well, the, for a start, while Goya was a painter, these were etchings, the horrors of war. He made them during the uh, Napoleonic invasion of Spain and its aftermath, but they were not published until many years after his death. They were private. Uh, they had to be private. He would have been, um, he would have been summarily executed if some um, people had realised what he was saying. But after his death, after they were published, they had a profound impact on how, I think, society in general realised that wars are not fought between armies alone, that the main victims of wars are people, are individuals, individual soldiers going mad, individual people massacred, raped, whatever, that this is what war is. It's not, it's not heroics. And, um, of course, that's been incredibly profound as a, as a reaction. So now we much more, since, since Goya, we have much more concentrated on, on civilian, the civilian impact of war. I have to confess, I'm not familiar. I should be familiar with these Goya etchings. I call them paintings, but obviously an error. What do they, just what do they look like? Or, you know, give us a little bit of they're a... small works because yes. they're etchings. And also because they're etchings, they're published, they were published as multiples. They were, they were printed till the place wore out after he died. Yes. They're in most public collections, most great public collections around the world. They show people in agony. They show people being killed. They show dead bodies, bodies rotting. Mm. They and, are not pretty. And the thing that you wrote about, and I thought this was a very important point that you were making, was that up to that point... A lot of the way war was depicted was, in fact, uh, it was a, a, a valori- valorization. It was a, it was a heroic act to fight in a war and die, and Goya was trying to, in a sense, change that perception. Well, I think Goya saw the suffering of, of the Spanish people with Napoleon and then with the um, reassertion of the Bourbons afterwards. Remember, though, of course, of course war, uh, war art would be... Um, all very clean and, and, and victorious because war art was always commissioned by the people who won it. Let's move forward a century, and you were talking, uh, you, were going, you're, you were discussing the German artist Otto Dix. Now, again, not everyone's necessarily familiar with his work. Why is his work notable, and uh, why De should Krieg. we think about art, his art in relation to war? Well, De Krieg, uh, the war. Otto Dix volunteered, like many young patriotic Germans, he volunteered at the beginning of World War I. He believed in his country, he believed his country was noble, he believed the war was noble. He was given an iron cross, he was a brave soldier. And then he, the Krieg was done in, um, was was printed in, uh, again, etchings, an etching series, so it's a multiple. And I think 
Um, etching is a beautiful technique for, um, for this kind of work because it uses acid to bite in the plate so you get this variegated line. But uh, these um, etchings were based on uh, uh, little paintings and drawings he made when he was a soldier at the front or just after the war. And, um, and they show the reality of life in the trenches. They show poppies blooming through a skull. They show the rotting flesh of soldiers. They show soldiers who went mad in the trenches and just go you know, totally, totally sort of just running, screaming, because it was such a horror. Now, the interesting thing about de Krieg is that he was one of these wonderful artists who was in the Cassandra exhibition. Um, in, uh, the interesting thing about de Krieg was it was toured throughout Germany in 1922. It um, only sold one edition at first, so many years later, of course, it's a total sellout. Um, but the rising Nazi party hated it mm. because, and they hated Otto Dix's work, and one of his paintings was condemned because it would not make people, um, I forget the exact term, it weakens the necessary inner war readiness of the people, the Nazis said. And I thought, yep. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> now, again, the, the Otto Dix, very powerful images and uh, not something that the, the rise of the Nazis and the Nazi party and, and their followers were appreciative of. But you saw it as, when you encountered it yourself, something very powerful and, 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 and a very strong statement about war and what war does. Well, yes, but the thing I find fascinating with Otto Dix is in a very high proportion of these artists that were in the Cassandra exhibition, the, a very high proportion of artists and, and writers and thinkers who understood what was happening with the Nazis left the country as soon as they came to power before the terrible purges happened. Otto Dix didn't. He was condemned but in his, by them. He wasn't allowed to exhibit, but he painted these absolutely terrifying apparently tranquil still lifes um, in, in the Nazi time. And it was a sort of a, an, an artist who sort of tries to hold firm to, to what he believes in, still loves his country, hates everything that's happening, mm. but his, his natural, his uh, still life painting, his landscape paintings are, um, are really quite creepy. Otto Dix has been a profound influence, I think, on artists well, up until now. They've sort of very profound influence on George Gittos and um, Ben Quilty, for example. Let's jump ahead a couple of decades, and I want to quote you back to yourself. And you say, the futility of art as a weapon of protest seems to be borne out by that famous, most famous anti-war painting of them all, Picasso's Guernica. Now, what were you getting at there? Because... Picasso painted Guernica in the aftermath of the bombing of the town. So the town was bombed on the 26th of April, 1937. And uh, some months later, there was the World Fair in Paris. And for the Spanish pavilion, Picasso painted this huge, ginormous, totally raw work of horror, of civilians crying, of horses screaming and a big fascist ball. Um, and it was the most powerful anti-war statement. I hadn't realised how incredibly powerful it was because you, you know, everybody knows it from reproductions until I went to see it uh, last year in, in Spain. 
and it is huge, and it is raw. It is an um, it, it has this sort of passion still going in it. Now, what happened to that painting afterwards, because the Spanish Civil War was still going on, was it was toured around Britain, and people tried to use it to persuade the British government to stop its studied neutrality and effective support of Franco. Nothing. And Franco came to power in Spain. People were massacred. People were put in jail for 20 or 30 years, and he died in his bed. Mm. But... But, and this is the but which is fascinating, because Guernica was so widely reproduced, everybody, you know, school kids saw it. Uh, you'd think this must have changed how people think about war and its horrors and the terrible things. But the American school kids who saw it, and the, um, they're part of the generation that um, participated in the war in Vietnam and Cambodia and bombed out. You're you're making some very profound points, and in fact, I remember seeing the the, the image, the the reproduction of the Guernica. Also, very I was very young when when I saw that, and probably had no idea, in fact, what it what it really represented and what it was supposed to represent. But let's move. You didn't think it was a happy happy work? <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. Hello, this is Dan Salton and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne. You're listening to a pre-recorded interview that I did with former curator and art critic Joanna Mendelssohn, who's been interrogating the possibilities of art and artistic practice, as you heard, making a difference to the way we encounter and see the world in these critical times. Let's continue with the interview. Let's jump ahead to the present because when I read your essay, the question it asks, can art really make a difference, situates itself in relation to your thinking about this year's Sydney Biennale and how this cultural event tries to address what you've called the crisis of our time. Now, most of us don't really get to this event, so you better tell us a little bit about this year's event and also about the crisis theme that was running through it, especially, as you noted, the dominance of the work of Chinese artist Ai Weiwei. Well, um, I think it's interesting. This is the first Biennale to have an an Asian 
curator and a woman curator. One of the themes um, in the exhibition is about refugees and it's dominated by the work of Ai Weiwei. And it's especially dominated by, out of Cockatoo Island, this incredible giant raft called Law of the Journey. And it's absolutely huge. And it's this giant inflated raft and it completely fills the um, turbine hall at the um, powerhouse in, um, in, in, on Cockatoo Island, which is just a giant old raggedy shed, in fact. Um, and then around the bottom of it, he's got inscriptions of things that people have said about being a refugee then the main thing is and this is anybody can see it because it's it's on on general release in cinemas all around the country is Ai Weiwei's film Human Flow Human Flow is look I have to tell you it is a long movie Um, I I just mentioned this because it's also absolutely relentless it is also brilliantly done and it gives a sense like nothing ever does and nothing else ever could of the immensity and the variety of refugees around the world. I didn't realise that there are about, at the moment, 64 million people refugees. Mm. Makes Puts Australia in context, doesn't it? Um, mm. so, and these people are coming and they are dying and they are, they are fleeing situations which are absolutely terrible. So there is beautifully filmed rolling clouds of black smoke from burning oil fields that have been set on fire by ISIS as their sort of, um, mm. as a part of their sort of retreat present uh, to Mosul. Um, there's wonderful piles of brilliant orange abandoned life jackets. Uh, is that kind of... So you've got this, this contrast between the visual beauty of how, what Ai Weiwei and his cinematographers see and the horror of what they are showing mm. and the fragility of life. He's trying to mount an argument that we have to do something. What I tend to think, and this is because of the other art and everything else, is that what he's created is a witness statement that sometime in the future, if there is a future, um, there will be a reckoning. And in that reckoning, something like human flow will be produced to say, you can't say you didn't know we can see that you did know. Mm. We can see that you were told and you did nothing. And you think that's part of what art, how art does actually make a difference. I, I'm assuming that's very much part of what, the, what you're thinking about. Yeah. I think what Ai Weiwei actually said um, on a previous occasion is that art is a social practice that helps people to locate their truth. I can't see Mr. Dutton changing Australia's Policies. I can't see any hope for those poor lost souls in Manus and Nauru from this film because the way we are at the moment, there is no hope. But there may, seeing this film may cause enough people to change their minds about how they vote, and that might help. And is that your, in a sense, is that your hope for art making a real difference if if I can go come back to that question that you started your essay with is that is that the way you sort of think about art at this point uh, I think that's about the most you can hope for it I mean I know that the works of art that changed my mind about a whole lot of things would include Otto Dix uh, would include Guernica um, I was a teenager when I read um, Anthony Blunt's brilliant book on the making of Guernica um, just mm. the whole the whole process that Picasso went through, the many drawings 
um, just his whole way he thought through it and then the way he actually did it. Um, and that really changed me on thinking how I thought about art mm. but on how you think about life. Yeah. Um, there are little things that are more subtle things, not little things, that art can do. Some, one of the um, groups of Aboriginal artists I really follow and admire are the artists in Propanau. And um, some years ago, it would have been unthinkable to regard um, urban Aboriginal artists as having a distinct and interesting and vital culture. They would have been sort of expected to assimilate and vanish. The proper now artists uh, have really changed how I think people, or a part of changing how people think of um, that generation of, of urban Aboriginal artists or urban Aboriginal people. Art obviously is one, one avenue of the stimuli that come to us in our everyday life. There's so many other things as well. In, in, in your thinking, of thing, thinking about these things, is there a, a special place for art as opposed to, say, social media or television or film? Or, I mean, it, you, you clearly have given this quite a lot of thought. And uh, re- reading through your essay, I, I think I was thinking about the same kinds of things. See, I think that I think the barriers between the different art forms are breaking down. Uh, there were always were artificial barriers. So, if you're looking at art now, you also have to look at television. You also have, like, in fact, my my binge watching over Easter, um, Babylon Berlin, with a fantastic television program that actually draws visually on the uh, on those German artists. Um, but it's also a, a series that is really saying we are in a terrible time of crisis now. It might be set in, uh, in Berlin in 1929, but it's really saying that the world now is remarkably similar to mm. uh, Berlin in 1929 mm. and all hell may break loose. Mm. I do like the way you've just phrased it, that, that the, these boundaries between the arts and, and other things... Uh, have always been porous in a sense, and it's a kind of artificial thing that happens. Well, what I really like about Aboriginal art and Aboriginal culture is that in Aboriginal art, it's, it's not the artifact, the object for sale that really that matters as much as, or it matters as much as the act of making the art, the performance in mm-hmm. the, the process is as important as the result, and that ephemeral art is as important as... Mm. Um, objects and this whole western fetish of the object because we can make money out of it is is quite bizarre so i really like that so that breaking down of barriers is really important and that's what's happening now in the arts generally i think that's a great place to finish up and uh you've given us lots of things to think about joanna and i want to thank you so much for being on communication mixed down today my pleasure That was Joanna Mendelson, and she's got a background as a curator in art museums. She's worked as a journalist and and as an an art critic in journalism, and she's currently Honorary Associate Professor in Art and Design at the University of New South Wales. She talked a lot about an essay that she wrote. We talked about it together, and that essay, we will put it online, the link online. You can go to 3cr.org.au. Click on where it says list and you'll find the communication mixed down website. We'll put that link up with the podcast of the show. That's it for us this week. We will be back next Thursday, six o'clock.
Speak to you then.